This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Debbie Hampton, a Baha'i from Chattanooga, Tennessee, who found out she had cancer in 1994 and has written a book, Slapped Awake, Living with Breast Cancer, A Journey in Poetry and Prose. I started the interview by asking Debbie where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Washington, D.C., in the northern Virginia area initially. Uh, It was a great place to grow up. There was a lot of diversity. This was the 50s, so there was a fair amount of prosperity Neighborhoods were very united. Everyone was in and out of each other's houses. The parents felt a collective sense of responsibility for the kids, and you knew if you did something bad at Mrs. Jones's house, your mama was going to know about it before you got up the hill. So there was a, a real sense of solidarity. We had a lot of diversity in our neighborhood, international diversity, not so much racial diversity. This was the 50s, after all. But uh, because of people who had been in the military and had been stationed in other places and married people from those places. Uh, Some religious diversity also. I had Jewish friends and Hindu friends when I was a child and all the varieties of Christianity. Mm. It was great. You know, it was a time when the world was pretty safe. It was still fairly innocent, I think, at least on the surface. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went back a few years ago and drove around my old neighborhood, which of course seemed much smaller, but I... I looked at the odometer and I saw how far I was allowed to range when I was six and seven years old on my bicycle. How far was that? About four miles. Really? About a four-mile radius. Really, basically, it was, you know, as far as you can ride and not have to call mom to come get you. Yeah. (laughs) And what age were we talking about? Uh, Six, seven, eight. Yeah. As soon as I could ride my bike. Yeah. Yeah. So so much like that anymore. And then we moved to Maryland when I was 11. Mm -hmm. And and that was where I finished high school. and. Mm -hmm. What was the reason that you moved to Maryland? From the Washington From area, yeah, yeah, Annandale Falls Church area. Yeah. My dad was a pharmaceutical salesman with Park Davis and Company, and he had been in the clinical investigation division in the 40s and 50s, which was mm-hmm. his favorite time of work, really helping out with clinical trials, and mm-hmm. uh, particularly with the advent of antibiotics in those days. And then he had a, an opportunity to do a more sales-oriented job, and that moved us to Baltimore. I see. And it was in Baltimore that you ran into the Baha'i faith? Uh-huh. Can you tell me about that? Well, actually, I really wonder if you always wonder how your heart's been prepared uh, for things like this. And even as a little child, I had a lot of questions. I always wondered, well, you know, what about, what about the people who lived before Jesus? God loves them, too. Or what about the American Indians who couldn't possibly have heard about Jesus because there weren't airplanes and ships and things that would carry you and carry the word of that? And I remember that my dad read me uh, Life of Christ for the Young that had been his. It was a four-volume set when I was six or seven, and I remember being so touched by the suffering of Christ. 
I remember crawling behind a big pink chair in the living room and crying, thinking about Jesus, but also wishing, imagining what it must have been like to live in the early days of the church. Mm -hmm. So that had always been a kind of longing of mine. And we had, in my dad's capacity as a pharmaceutical salesman, we met a number of people who had come to the Washington, D.C. area for their residencies. And one of them was a family named Kagani. I've never met any Baha'is who knew Kaganis, but I have had someone say to me, that's not a typical Muslim name. But we became friends with this young Iranian family. The father had come to do his residency at one of the hospitals in Washington. And they invited us to their home when I was 10. And they had the whole Persian traditional dinner the first time I'd had all that wonderful food and experienced the kind of unique and warm hospitality that Iranians are known for. Mm. And I try not to reconstruct that memory to my wishes of there being anything obviously uh, that pointed to the faith and I remember the little inlaid beautiful frames of their pictures and things that you find in typical Persian homes Mm -hmm. but we became good friends with them and they gave me uh, a tablecloth a block printed tablecloth with the bridge at Esfahan and then my dad had them out to our house for a typical American barbecue and I remember I had Dr. Kagani write the Iranian alphabet out for me I was always interested in mm-hmm. language and alphabets. Mm-hmm. And I, I never knew what I did with it until I started investigating the Baha'i faith years later, and I found that alphabet tucked in my Bible. Oh, really? So I just, again, you wonder in what ways mm-hmm. your heart is prepared or that your soul is longing towards something even when you don't know it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I first heard the word Baha'i when I was in high school. And there were a number of young people in my school who became Baha'is or were interested in the Baha'i faith. And that was my first exposure. And then I I went on to nursing school, and my roommate in nursing school began investigating the Baha'i faith actively, and she became a Baha'i. And because I loved her, I was curious, although I was hanging on to my Christianity kind of by my fingernails at that point very dogmatically. Mm. And I think what impressed me was that she never pushed. I watched how she changed. I watched her joyfulness. I watched her sense of groundedness in this new faith. She answered my questions, and she made information available, but she was very respectful of my own right to ask questions and to investigate for myself. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a Baha'i New Year's party, and that was really the turning point. Two things happened in 1972 that were the turning point for me. One was the Baha'i New Year's party, which was at a coffee house in Timonium, Maryland, called Patches 15 Below. And I went into that place uh, to play the piano for my friends that were going to do some music that night. And I was just so struck by the diversity of the people. There were people of every color, every nationality, from hippies with beards halfway down their chests to insurance men in three-piece suits. But such genuine love between all the people there that it was just intoxicating. And then later that evening, I had my old question answered about what about the people who didn't know about Jesus? How does that all fit together? What about the Buddhists and the Jews that I know who live prayerful lives? The youth had prepared a little slideshow that demonstrated the Baha'i principle of progressive revelation. Mm. How all of God's teachers are the same. The same Holy Spirit is present in each and it's uh, just that they are manifest at different times in history to bring a different set of social teachings but to renew the same spiritual truths. And I said, that's it. That's exactly what I believed. I just didn't know the words for it. That's exactly what I've always felt. So then I really began earnestly investigating the faith. And then later that spring, 
uh, Dr. Peter Kahn, who is a member of our Universal House of Justice, our international governing body, had uh, come to speak at Goucher College, which is um, at that time was a private girls' college in Baltimore that was affiliated with Hopkins. And I remember that it was a big deal. The Baha'is were all excited about it. And, and he's a brilliant mind, absolutely brilliant. I do not remember one thing that Peter Kahn said. But what I do remember is something that happened later in that program that evidently the Baha'is were a little uneasy about how it would be perceived by people who weren't familiar with the faith. But it was exactly what turned the corner completely for me. And that was that Dr. Kahn's father got up and read from the Quran and read prophecies in the Quran that referred to the coming of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. Mm. And... I just remember when I'd never heard words of the Quran before, and I thought, this is God's voice. I recognize this. It sounds just like in the Bible. It sounds just like in the Old Testament. It sounds just like in the other things that I've read from other faiths. This is God's voice. It does fit together. And three weeks later, I was a Baha'i. Wow. And do you know how it might have changed the direction you were going in or how your outlook? I was actually, I was looking at Mormonism before I became a Baha'i. I was attracted to the fact that the Mormons seemed to live their faith every day. I was attracted to the emphasis on family, the emphasis on really taking care of one another, the emphasis on service, the time that the Mormon youth spent doing mission work. Um, I was a little, I was struggling some with the, the theology, but I was very attracted to the way of life and the sincerity and the devotion that they showed in their belief. So that had been happening sort of concurrently. I think that probably just knowing what my views were even as a young Christian, I probably wouldn't have taken that route, but I knew the things that attracted me to it, and I found those things in the faith as well. Mm-hmm. And then you finished nursing school? Mm-hmm. And then where did you go after that? Oh, goodness. I've had such a rich life. Good mm-hmm. grief. And anything I've ever wanted to do, if I haven't been able to do it in my career, there's been an opportunity in the Baha'i faith to do it. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I traveled for a couple of months doing music with another Baha'i friend as kind of the core of a musical group that picked up musicians in different Latin American and Caribbean countries. We did that for about three months, and I had married, and mm-hmm. my first husband was in the Army, and we were stationed at Fort Sill out in Oklahoma. The nearest Baha'is were 60 miles away at the Air Force Base out in Altus, and we were just a little group, and it was a wonderful time. You know, it was the early days of being a Baha'i and all of the excitement, and uh, I worked as a nurse and did that for about seven years in Oklahoma and then back in Maryland. And then we had the opportunity to move to Tennessee. And that's where I've made my home since the late 70s. And then since then, I've just had a really checkered career. I left nursing probably more by default than by decision and have had a wonderful chance to do writing, to do editing, Mm -hmm. to do marketing, uh, to work as a professional philanthropy person, working in fundraising for nonprofits. And just a a great opportunity to do so many things that I never would have imagined when I was back thinking I was going to be a nurse. And then something dramatic in about 1994 happened in your life. Yeah, I had one of those uh, epiphanies, one of those life-changing experiences, one of those growth opportunities that we are sent, and that was that at the age of 42 I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And at some point, you developed a manuscript that you're trying to publish called Slapped Awake, Living with Breast Cancer, Journey in Poetry and Prose. Uh-huh. 
And when did you uh, write that? Actually, I wrote that after I had to go on disability. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1994 and then had a recurrence or a series of recurrences really since the year 2000. And I worked until 2004. And then the demands of treatment and the toll that it had taken really forced me that to realize that I just simply could not maintain working any longer. Mm-hmm. And so in the days that I was adjusting to that slowly, slowly, I thought, well, I'd received a lot of encouragement to do something with the poetry I'd written throughout the time that I'd been experiencing breast cancer, which has always been a way of me processing what's going on internally. Mm-hmm. And I, as I started to look at the poetry, I thought, well, 25 poems doesn't really make a book. And there's a story that goes with it that would explain some of this. So I just slowly began writing about what had, what had happened, mm. what kind of changes going through this had meant for me, having to face my mortality at a fairly young age, although, I mean, we all are at least abstractly aware of our mortality, mm-hmm. and realizing that I had a 10-year-old daughter that I wasn't sure I was going to live to raise, and also just the sharp focus that something like this has in making you really look at your life and say, you know, what am I doing with my life? How am I living my life? What do I, what do I know now that I have to look at this in such a more urgent manner than I'd anticipated? Mm-hmm. What do I want to do? Right. And in reading the book, it just seemed like a recurring theme of hope and then despair and hope and then despair. And just wondering if you could describe for me what kept you going each time you thought it was gone and then it, it came back and it was gone and it came back. Oh, gosh. That's been such a process. And I still struggle with it some, although most of the time I think I have an acceptance of kind of peaceful coexistence with this thing. Um I think initially I really had done everything I possibly could from bilateral mastectomies to aggressive treatment that really wasn't the clinical standard at the time but was an option that I insisted on. And it came back anyway. I mean, statistically, I should have done fine with the kind of tumor I had, the size of the tumor, the fact that I didn't have any lymph nodes that were involved. But, you know, somebody falls on the wrong side of the statistics, and I just happen to be the one who did. And it has been that ebb and flow of remission and recurrence and remission and recurrence. I guess what it's really forced me to do is to try to slowly, and not always successfully, I mean, sometimes I'm prying my fingers from it, to try to detach from this notion of, my physical reality as being my true reality. Aging's going to do that to us anyway. You know, I just have kind of a kickstart on that, having had this happen to me at a young age. I have to remind myself that a lot of the things that are a challenge for me are also becoming challenges for my friends, and they've never had cancer, mm. you know, just as part of being middle-aged. Right. I do think that a life-threatening illness does throw that into high relief for you. Mm-hmm. And so that's been part of it is really you know with one foot in this world and sometimes one in the next and trying to live fully here and yet try to detach from it and it's uh, it really is a puzzle to me sometimes and a struggle but uh, it's been a terrific matrix for growth too to try to do that and to try to maintain some balance one thing that I'm sure soldiers probably experience this or people who've been through a disaster. Or One thing that 
can happen is that you have a heightened sense of the sweetness of just the simple things. And hopefully, most of the time, I have a better ability to kind of shrug off things that would have, small things in life that would have been annoyances or might have been big deals to me before, like, oh, for heaven's sake, in the whole scheme of things, this doesn't really matter. And that's a great gift. Mm. I mean, that's one of the benefits, I think, of when you've kind of been through this forge of of tough stuff. Right. It's kind of funny some days, too. I mean, you want to live for now. You want to live in the moment. You want to not postpone doing things. But, geez, I may live. You know, what if I'm 82 years old and I don't have any money left? <laughs> On the other hand, <laughs> I guess we all face that to some degree. Again, right. it's just... Uh, perhaps thrown in a higher relief when you're facing cancer. Right. The other thing that struck me in the book was that I think anybody else who would go through so much pain and suffering and disappointment and more pain and suffering, and even the, the, the cure creates more pain and suffering than the disease itself. Not everybody could keep going. I can see people committing suicide because they can't go another day with the pain and suffering. You'd be surprised at how strong the will to live is. I guess there are some people that give in to despair or, or feel so helpless and hopeless in the face of this that they they take that route. But I tell you, every day, because I'm in treatment a good part of my life now, I'm in and out of the doctor's office and meet other people who are going through this with whatever kind of cancer they have. And every day I am so touched by the persistence of life and people's strong, strong will to live Mm. and also the ways in which the disease does change them and certainly not always for the better I think sometimes when we go through tests and this was true for me too sometimes it brings out stuff you might not want to look at or stuff that was latent and you go, geez, you know, look where that led me for a while but I just, I don't know. I think we're hardwired for connection. I really do. I think that's part of what God's placed in us, and that's part of our longing to get back to Him, too. And when something like this happens, relationships are so much more important. Being able to receive, I think, is a lesson that many of us find difficult when you are rendered helpless by illness or unable to do the things that you used to or even to define yourself by what you do, which I think we particularly as Americans tend to do, um, you have to call on some other part of yourself. And you do have a choice, I guess, about whether to give in to despair or whether to come to the realization that was helpful to me, and perhaps this isn't a universal realization for everyone that and how they deal with their disease, but what I came to after anger and frustration and sadness and depression was just that I don't have control over anything, and I never did, except how I respond to what happens to me. So what is, is, and what's going to be, is going to be, and I need a good attitude, I need to take care of myself, I need to think good thoughts, because, you know, Baha'u'llah tells us that the reality of man is his thought, and that influences our souls, it influences how we respond to life. Mm -hmm. But so much of it is completely and totally out of my physical control. 
And until I could make some peace with that, I was really miserable. Mm. And upset and angry and trying to shape it and trying to force it in a particular direction. Mm. I guess you're trying to publish the manuscript. Yeah, I'm going to go on with a publish-on-demand route on the Internet. I've tried Mm. to get a literary agent, and it's difficult at best. Um, You know, this is my first long work. I've worked in writing and editing for a long time over the last 20 years, but I don't have uh, well-known journalistic credentials or anything like that, so it's been difficult to attract uh, an agent, although I've received lots of encouragement and good reviews from readers and local local readers and people that I really respect, so it's time for me just to turn loose of it. I had a portion of it excerpted as an essay in a cancer magazine in the summer, and I just got such a warm response, and one woman, bless her heart, even had said that Someone wrote me and said that her daughter had shared the essay that had appeared in the magazine, which is an extract of the last chapter of the book, with the family to talk about how this really resonated with her experience of having metastatic cancer and that the daughter had died a week or two before she wrote to me. She was 42 and left a four-year-old and a husband. And the family was, you know, dealing with this loss, but she said that the father of the girl who had died had read the essay at the memorial service. And I thought, you know, if this, if my writing about this subject doesn't do anything else, maybe, maybe it's done that much at least. And I just, it enabled me to kind of turn loose of all these notions of, oh, waiting it out for a big publisher. And I, I just think it needs to get out in the world and do what it's going to do. And I need to move on to other projects. I've got you know, other stuff I want to write. What issue of what magazine would they be, and what was the title of the essay? Um, the magazine is called Cure Magazine. It is a magazine that has a, about a half a million circulation, and it's read predominantly by professionals and clinicians and patients with cancer and their caregivers. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource, and it's free. The subscription is free. You can check with your doctor's office or go to Cure. I think it's Cure.com. But look for Cure Magazine. You can Google Cure Magazine and look for it. The essay appeared in the summer issue of Cure this past summer, and it was called A Life Well Lived. Mm-hmm. But if anyone is interested in the book, which I hope will be available through Westview Publishing, which is a publish-on-demand publishing house based in Nashville, uh, you can email me, and I'll be glad to keep your name and let you know when the book is out, which, as I say, I hope will be toward the end of January or early February of '07. And my email is Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Hampton, H-A-M-P-T-O-N, all one word, Deborah Hampton, at slappedawake.com. And I'm working on the webpage, so hopefully that'll be up soon and a way to order that way. But once Westview publishes it, it will be available through them and also through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular you'd like to read an excerpt to share with us? Oh, yeah. Let me think here for a minute. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, this is a heavy subject, but sometimes uh, cancer is funny. I've got, I guess, a couple of things. One has to do, I think, with what you were saying about accepting the fact that this thing is with me to stay. Mm -hmm. So let me find one that I call green card. I guess as I wrote this, so much of the early days of cancer are about the battle against cancer and fighting the disease and all that kind of martial and military language is a part of the lingo, I think, of cancer, even in, as you read somebody's obituary, you know, he, felt he fought a courageous battle with cancer. And, and to some degree, it is true, and it really helps, I think, especially when you initially are diagnosed, 
to get that imagery and marshal all of that because it takes a huge amount of both physical and emotional and spiritual energy to accept the reality that you have this disease, that your future is very uncertain, to go through the kinds of things that you have to uh, to treat the disease. But when it comes back and comes back <laughs> and comes back, I guess... How many times did it come, has it come back? You know, I was trying to count the other day. I think it's been five or six. I haven't been in full remission really since 2003 or early 2004, and here we are at 2007. One time I counted up of all the cancer treatments I've had, if I include stuff like tamoxifen and arimidex, some of these new anti-hormone treatments that are pills that you take. Tamoxifen's been around a while, but arimidex and some of these other ones you can read about in magazines now are new estrogen blockers that are used in a lot of breast cancer. If I include all of that stuff, I've taken 17 different chemo agents over the course of my illness. And if I include all of that stuff, including the daily pills of tamoxifen or arimidex when I was in basically in remission or in partial remission, I've only not been taking something a total of about five months if I add all the days and weeks up in, this 12, year in 12 years. But and, they all, and they all have side effects. Yeah, they all have side effects. But good grief, I'm grateful. I mean, I'm still here. It's another year, and thank goodness there's still stuff in the pipeline that's coming down. I am getting to the short list. You know, I mean, I've been in clinical trials and stuff. But In other words, and I read this in your book, is that the drugs become ineffective, or the cancer is not responding, right. or the, the elimination of the cancer is not responding to the drugs, and you have to search for other drugs. Yeah, because that's the very nature of cancer, is it? You know, it's, it's, great at, it's great at mutating. I mean, that's what it does. So it becomes resistant to some treatments, although right now I am back on a treatment that was effective for me in 2003, and we're hoping to add a new drug to it here in a little bit that's coming coming down the pipe, one actually that I was in a phase one clinical trial a couple of years on that's been fast-tracked because it's so effective, a new biological agent, so there's new stuff happening all the time, and that's where people should maintain hope, too. I don't know that there's ever going to be a single cure for cancer. It's hundreds of different diseases. Even breast cancer is 10 or 12 different kinds of breast cancer with all kinds of different characteristics. So nobody's disease is exactly like the next person's. But people should be hopeful, you know, and not frightened. Because even with metastatic disease, and this is what I really hope the book has shown, is that even when you have had the spread of breast cancer, medicine and psychology and goodness, all the fields have progressed now to a point where you can begin to develop ways to manage it like a chronic disease, like diabetes or like MS. So it, it's a different world, and it's part of the reason for the book, too, is that we're the first generation that's trying to learn how to do this, to live with those uncertainties, to live with the demands of treatment and uh, figure out exactly how to make a life in the middle of that. Yeah. Well, this is the poem, and it's called Green Card. This was after having learned once again that the cancer had come back when I was realizing that I needed to change my relationship with the disease. A fundamental shift subducts inside me as I hear the news once again that my breast cancer has returned. I know this negotiation so well, yet find myself at the bargaining table without words of arbitration, without demands from my side any more. I am the British up against Gandhi. I cede the flag. I don't feel beaten, but rather gently overtaken by what is true. Cancer is now a persistent, insistent part of me, and I cannot deny a part of myself 
nor treat it as the enemy any longer. I still want to live, sometimes desperately, but we must peacefully coexist. These rogue cells have been the occupying troops for ten years. They are marrying local girls, and everyone has applied for a green card. It's amazing you can keep your sense of humor <laughs> in these very difficult times. <laughs> That's a, some of what keeps me going, period. Yeah. I have a wonderful group of women that I meet with uh, every two weeks also and have for the last five years. It's a therapy group of women with advanced breast cancer, and it has been such a lifeline. Mm-hmm. And that may sound like, oh, gee, you know, what do you guys talk about? What a morbid thing. Every two weeks you come together and you're all sick, and some of you are dying. It is the most authentic place I've ever sat in in my life. Mm-hmm. These are, you know, nobody's got time for the superficialities or patience with it, at least not among each other. Mm-hmm. And there's permission to really cut to the heart. And we laugh a lot about stuff that probably people would be horrified that <laughs> we'd even make a joke about. But it's a place to, you know, engage in gallows humor a little bit and at the just the absurdity of how something like this can can happen and yet be a blessing. I mean, that's the, the most divine irony. Yeah. And I'm I'm very grateful. For me, it's the path, I think, that had to happen for me to get to where I needed to be and to really claim myself and to claim my faith in a new way and to claim my relationship with God and with my faith with joy, not just duty, and to realize how much I needed it so uh, it's it's what had to happen to me. I wouldn't. It sounds probably gratuitous and glib, but I really wouldn't trade a day of it. Mm. I I can't. I wouldn't be who I am. Her. I wouldn't be who I am. I'm. I don't think I'd be who I am. It's what I needed, and some people just need a bigger whoop upside the head than others. I needed a big one. That's the title of the book. <laughs> Slapped awake instead of whoop upside the head. <laughs> no. Th- what is the significance of slapped awake? Um. I think in the early days of my cancer particularly, I've never been so terrified. And for someone, anybody that receives a, a cancer diagnosis, I've I've talked to so many people, hundreds of people over the year, breast cancer patients, but also other people. Who, there's just this incredulousness that this could possibly be happening. How could I be receiving this news, first of all? Cancer, the word cancer, is so freighted with, so latent with doom and fear and horror. You know, why, think about it, why is the news of cancer devastating in a different way than news of multiple sclerosis or other some other disease that's also life-threatening or terribly debilitating? It's just, there's an emotional connection to the word cancer. Well, there's so many people dying from it. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. Of course, heart disease might be a bigger killer. I'm not sure statistically. But certainly, I don't think heart disease has the same emotional grip around things that the word cancer is. Yeah, and actually, heart disease for women is a more serious killer and is the first cause of death among women. But it doesn't have that same effect. Yeah, there's there's some... cachet that the word cancer has for whatever reason. For a long time, you know, people wouldn't even utter it. Even my former mother-in-law still can't say the word cancer when she talks to me. She says the C, the C word. And that generation, I mean, before Betty Ford came out with her mastectomy and um, was so open about her breast cancer, people just didn't talk about 
cancer and particularly about something like breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's an odd thing that you, you experience this terror, I think this period of terror, of uncertainty of what's going to happen, what is treatment going to do to me, what is that going to be like, you know, who will raise my children, what, what do I have to do to get my life in order, what does this mean? And really even to the point of sometimes weeks of sleeplessness. But at the same time, there is this kind of epiphany, this incredible, blown-apart, raw awareness of just how good things are, how sweet things are, the blessings that are around us, how kind people can be, how much you love the people you love, how good a drink of water tastes, how the sun comes up over that ridge and the things that we don't look at that are there every single day but we don't take the time to look at them or see so that was what the slapped awake part was was just being jerked into a really raw awareness of both the fragility of life but oh how good and how sweet and how full how full of grace this life is. And what's the state of your cancer today? Well, I'm back in treatment. I had a little bit of a hiatus. Um, I was in a kind of rigorous treatment again last summer that when it got to be 25 or 30 days out of 30 that I felt crummy, I said to the doctor, we need to renegotiate this. This uh, quality of life issues here or something we need to talk about. I haven't It's interesting. I've never asked him, how long do you think I have? I'm enough of a fatalist that probably, you know, if he told me I'd die on that day to the hour. (laughs) So I don't want to know. At least at this point, I don't want to know what he thinks. And he's also, he's a man of great faith himself. You know, whenever I try to thank him, he always points heavenward and says, you know, it's not me. I said, well, you're the instrument. And I appreciate your, your skills and the art of healing as well as your scientific knowledge. But... It's just, it's a strange state to be in of this heightened awareness of how good things are. And to come back into treatment again after a pretty tough summer, a little bit of a break, which was very welcome, and then back on treatment that before was was pretty unpleasant for me but the, but effective so the doctor who started me at half the dose that I took before and I entered it with a lot of trepidation and at first I even thought that the pharmacy had filled my prescription wrong and I realized how reactive I was even to the notion of taking this stuff again but uh I've done okay I had some some of the side effects but I'm feeling pretty good and just you know I'll deal with the side effects as they come along and as long as I'm feeling better more time than I'm not uh I have every reason to still want to continue with this. Right. I'm not ready to check out yet. My <laughs> soul's too puny. I'd be all hairless and blind in the next world. I'm not ready yet. I'm too too much of a baby soul yet. So I know God has his time, but I sure don't think I'm ready. <laughs> I got too many things to live for here and too much yeah. work to do and just yeah. a lot of things to still enjoy and to try to accomplish. Yeah. You you do look good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I got my hair. Last time you saw me, I didn't have too much hair. Yeah, you so had a little fuzz. Yeah, and I feel I feel pretty good, all things considered. I really do. And one thing that really struck me was your continuing to work 
through all of that suffering, I read a part where you said, I just wasn't, I was driving in the driveway, ready to rip off my clothes and lie in bed and just go to sleep, but sleep wouldn't do it. Sleep won't give me the rest I need, but that's the only thing I could do. And yet you kept working and working, and I just really was amazing. Well, that was... That was partly selfish, really. I Psychologically, I just had to. That was part of my fierce desperation to normalize things as much as possible. I mean, some of it was economic necessity, too, but it was as much as anything. It was psychologically what I needed to do to try to extrude life through some kind of filter that would make it as normal as possible. And that was why also when it came time that I really felt I needed to stop working, that was crystal clear to me. And it was just a matter of figuring out how. Mm. And it's it's really been, it's been the right decision all the way around. I mean, as sick as I have been a good deal of the time the last couple of years, there's just no way. I just don't have the stamina for it anymore. And that's a challenge too of, you know, okay, now that I'm not the director of development or I'm not the this or the that or the other, who am I? What's my worth? And I was, you know, looking at the dust bunnies and the way that my house isn't kept anymore because I simply can't do it. Uh, there are times I have a meltdown about it, you know, and think, I just can't do this anymore and I hate it and I can't do it. And I just have to say, well, you know, what are you going to be remembered for? Are people likely to remember you for the fact that you didn't wipe the dog food up completely in the kitchen? Or hopefully they would remember that I made an effort to teach children's classes or made an effort to help somebody or just at least tried to get out of the bed. So, yeah. you know, it's and that's not easy. As I say, we do tend to define ourselves by these other outward things. Right, right. You mentioned other projects that you are looking forward to. Yeah. Tell me about them. Well, I think I want to do a book of essays. I've even got a, a working title for it, which is a little interesting. I think it's from a Sartre quotation. I need to find the source, but I heard someone quote it one time on a radio show, and it was, With Death on My Shoulder. Because it is really kind of how I live with this awareness. Uh, and so it, I would like to write a bunch of essays on a whole series of different things, not necessarily all about being sick or facing suffering or anything like that, but just observations about people and how people face adversity, things that I remember, things that really have shaped who I am. Mm-hmm. Would you like to read another excerpt? From sure, okay. sure. find myself mostly reading poetry just because, of course, in the chapters, it would be hard to start in the middle, but the, the book mm-hmm. is largely narrative with poetry interspersed kind of like uh, Reynolds Price, A Whole New Life. I'm not comparing myself to Reynolds Price by any means. He's fantastic. But um, I do think it's nice that he includes his poetry as part of a way to convey the emotional truth of what he's writing, too. Mm-hmm. I'll write about the first day of chemotherapy. Um, it's interesting. I think that so many, so many of us are still really fearful when we get a cancer diagnosis of chemotherapy. We remember, you know, somebody saying how it dang near killed Aunt Bessie back in 1982. And chemo isn't easy, but there's so many incredible advances that help people to manage the side effects of chemotherapy that used to be totally debilitating and even required people to be hospitalized when they were receiving it. 
I watch people come into the chemo room. You know, they've got their lunch box with them, and my husband and I always sat and played cribbage through it. Um, there's a sense of camaraderie, and people are able to, well, I worked through most of it, sometimes would take a day or a day and a half off if I was feeling particularly wiped out or a bit nauseous, but they're terrific drugs now, a whole new class of drugs and a whole new understanding of the biochemistry that leads to what used to be just that intolerable nausea and vomiting that was induced by chemotherapy, and they can stop that biochemical cascade early with the use of long-acting drugs that are administered IV at the time you receive your chemo, plus other oral drugs you can take afterward. And if one thing doesn't work, they can try something else. Mm -hmm. And also now the ability to keep your white blood counts up with the use of injections where people had to be fearful about going out in crowds and all. Sometimes if it gets to the point where your white counts are so low that it's dangerous or would have been dangerous in the past, they can give you things that stimulate your body to produce them. So there's all these advances that have helped cancer patients to be able to live closer to a normal life even while they're in treatment. Mm. So, Now, I understand the concept of radiation because obviously the radiation is what is killing the cells. Yeah. But I, don't, I have a hard time understanding the concept of the chemo. Mm-hmm. And what is the chemo? Is it, I mean, radiation is, is something you're, you're basically attacking your body with something that could kill you. Uh-huh. But it's doing it, in a, and as I read in your book, it, they do it in a very fine location mm-hmm. so that they basically are attacking a very small area right. of the body so that because they know wherever it gets hit, that's that's dead. Yeah. Is chemo other poisons that are going into the body that are like going after those cancers to yep. poison them? So yeah. basically you're taking in poison. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, if with traditional chemotherapies, what you're taking is you're taking medications that go through your whole system. So in that sense, they're kind of also able to hit cancer cells that may be hiding places or on their way somewhere else. Uh, my husband always says it's, he, he sees chemo like pruning a rose bush with a shotgun. You know, you're going you're gonna to get some of the bad places, but you're also going to blow the petals off and everything else too. And it's it's becoming more refined, but it's still a pretty crude way to do it. With the new biological agents like Herceptin and some of these other uh, targeted genetic therapies, it's much, much more focused, and this really is the direction that a good deal of research and development is going now with these biological agents. But good old-fashioned chemo that um, attacks the cell at a particular stage of its division or cell growth. It goes after fast-growing cells, so it hits cancer cells, but that also means it hits things like your stomach lining, your hair. These are other places that are affected. So the traditional side effects we think about of losing your hair or losing your eyebrows or being sick to the stomach, it's because the medicine affects fast-growing cells, and those are two areas where you have fast-growing cells. So it is a, you know, a system-wide assault through chemotherapy. And it just makes me marvel at the resilience of the human body. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's the, the body has a terrific ability to recover. And that says a lot for how efficient, I think, that our bodies are in spite of disease. Mm. Well, let me read to you about the first day of chemotherapy. Please. I had pictured, you know, a little solitary room and me on a treatment table by myself, and that has never been my experience now having had chemotherapy in three different offices, but this was the first day. 
In white wicker chairs with flowered cushions we sit side by side, as though on a cruise or at a garden party. Ivies hang above us and hold us tethered in plastic embrace. I am a new inductee in this fraternity, my first day of chemotherapy, a rite of passage. I watch the cytoxin drip into the IV chamber and see the methotrexate tint the tubing yellow before it disappears into me. I call up images of scouring my interior landscape for any fugitive cells that might be hoboing their way to a new home in my liver or my bones. I glance furtively at those next to me. How is his color? How much hair has she lost? I am met by open smiles. We bear our souls to one another before we even exchange names. What kind of cancer do you have? We do not shy away from the word that once struck horror in our hearts, but take grim comfort in naming it aloud. Our common companion. In this room, there is no need for disguise or artifice. Midnight has long since struck, and we are unmasked. Debbie, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Warren. I really appreciate the chance to do this, and I hope it starts a conversation uh, in families and among other cancer patients about just how we deal with the tough stuff in life, not just cancer. I mean, you can't throw everything through the cancer scale of catastrophe or anything, but it's uh, it's one of the things that happens. It's just something that happens in life, and you have the opportunity to rally family and friends around and to make it a shining moment, not just a moment of despair. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Debbie Hampton, a Baha'i from Chattanooga, Tennessee, an author of the book Slapped Awake, Living with Breast Cancer, A Journey in Poetry and Prose. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. such a long time when she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find she had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow she walked into the fire alone and scared stiff now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body 
has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get worn Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But as folks know life with Jamie is just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that we're really made of? How else will we burn or do we My doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded It's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder What on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Sent me a strangely bad gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really Someone who loves me sent me a strangely bad
happy and joyful be Oh God, I will no longer be Full of anxiety Nor will I let trouble harass me
And oh, what a gift I've been given All my time is my own today And what else could I have chosen But to give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time the feel of a hometown where I landed They're slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you I hold the earth in the palm of my hand So say the wise and the sages I've got nothing but I'm working God's land I've got the wealth of the ages Wear the clothing of the common man Doing the work of the angels Time flies like fine grains of sand My life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed The slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you Ended. And it's only what love demanded to give it to you It's like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed the Slipping away, I'll be empty-handed so all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own Gotta give them to you Can I really call these things my own This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.